Malachi. Looking at Malachi chapter 1 through uh, part of chapter 2 anyway. Looking at, as you have titled here, the value of true worship. And I want to show some of the lessons we can learn from this section of Malachi because there's actually quite a bit uh, that's said. But uh, there's a lot about attitudes and, and things not being, you might say, as they seem or as they're trying to be, to be seen or portrayed as we find them here in Malachi chapter 1. Malachi begins in chapter 1 verse 1 by referencing his charge, he says, as a burden. He says, a burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. This doesn't mean that he was an unwilling person to proclaim God's word. But anytime you stand for what is right, you stand for what is righteous, what is truth, it can be a burden in the sense that others are not going to like it. It can be hard upon you, and I think that's what he's referencing here in verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. We look here as we begin looking more at our, our text. We begin our first main section, if you will, which I've entitled God Still Loves Israel in chapter 1 verses 2 uh, through about verse 5 here because there are a lot of problems with what's taking place concerning their worship their attitudes and the things they were doing and it, no doubt God still loves them because if he didn't he wouldn't be calling them out he'd just be punishing them or let them be cast aside but he definitely still loves them as we find here in chapter 1 uh, but even as he begins to talk about how he loves them there's still problems with the people, even concerning that very idea. And so we begin by looking at God's love for them in Malachi chapter 1, beginning here in verse 2, where he says, I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord, yet Jacob I have loved. Now we find here in verse 2, and we find this, this phrase, Yet you say numerous times, especially in chapter 1, God says one thing and yet they try to contradict as he'll say something and, and he'll reply by saying, but you say something else. And we find here in verse 2, he says, I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say in what way have you loved us? It is hard to fathom someone who sincerely asks that question or has an attitude, how has God loved me? How has God shown his love for me? And that's what, that's what you find here in verse 2. It really, it's almost like a slap in the face to the Lord with that reply by them saying, in what way have you loved us? It's kind of like we say, well, okay, let me just list the ways. And we could go on and on about the things that God has done to show his love for them. One of the biggest ones of all being his mercy and long-suffering toward them. But God has loved the people, had blessed them continually, yet they say, as we find in verse 2, in what way? God loves the righteous, as you find here in verse 2. But as you see next in verse 3 and following, he only despises the wicked. Because you know the story of Esau and Jacob. What is Esau known for? He's the one who, if you remember, rejected his birthright. He sold it. And we find here in verse 2, as he says here, Yet Jacob I have loved. But let's continue on looking at verses 3 through 5, and we see how God will really tear down the attempts of the wicked. 
And I think some of this is being literal, some of it is being, is being figurative, because each time they reply, he's going to tear down and tear apart their accusations, their phrases of, yet you say, and he's going to just basically bring those things to nothing. And it's interesting as you begin this section that God begins by telling them how much he loved them, and their reply is, yet they say, in what way have you loved us? Well, he's going to tear down their false ideas concerning God's lack of love for them. And he does this, as you find verse 2 and following, as we're going to see as we go through this section, that they really have no love for God because there's no true uh, giving to God as they should and worshiping him as they should. We find, as we look at Malachi chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, or continuing here in verse 3, he says here, But Esau have hated and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, We have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, They may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see, and you shall say, The Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. And so Esau is using an example of what he hated, that is rebellion and disregard for what is good before God. And we find here that God will, will come down every act of the wicked, as we see there in verse 4. And their eyes will see the power of God, as we find there in verse 5. His power against wickedness and his love for mankind. That's what's going to bring uh, glory to him, and that's what they're going to see with their very own eyes. No doubt they had seen the, the power of God and the love of God, yet they have become so wicked that they ask, ask the question again, in what way have you loved us? We continue on here in Malachi chapter 1. We begin focusing more now on the priests. It's interesting, he begins first with, with the kind of the group as a whole, but then he focuses in on the leaders because they are the ones responsible for so much of what has, of what has happened. And so the priests are called out for neglect and indifference. And as we begin this section here in Malachi chapter 1, verse 6 and following, we're going to focus first on the phrases, the Lord says. Because we find here, as we're going to look at, we're going to find about four or five different times that phrase is used. And then we're going to go back and look at what they have said, what their response has been to what the Lord has said. So let's first begin with the first, the Lord says, statement. We find there in Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, he said, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts. So that's his first statement there. Where is my honor? There was no honor, as we're going to find here a little bit later. But that's his first charge against him, is where is the honor due to him? He says in verse 6, A son honors his father and a servant his master. Meaning this is the natural process. But, but then he says, If then I am the father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my reverence? Meaning they were not showing God the honor due to him. We look at the next verse there. Looking at verse 7, we'll also include verse 12 here uh, in, in a moment. He says here, you have offered defiled food on my altar, Malachi 1 and verse 7. We also find, as you look at verse 12, 
but you profane it and that you say the Lord, the table of the Lord is defiled and its fruit, its food is contemptible. That what are they doing? They're offering up defiled things to God. Things that were not actually approved of by God to be offered up as sacrifices. If you remember in the Old Testament, what were they to offer up to God? Everything without blemish. Nothing that had any type of imperfection at all could be offered up to God. But yet we find here in verse 6 and then again in verse 12, they're offering up defiled food to God. They're giving to Him what is not less than what He deserves. Next we find in verse 8, He says here that you offer what others would reject. He says, and when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? He's talking about their livestock and their cattle, which they would offer up for sacrifices. They're giving God what is not due to him. They're giving him less. They're holding back. As we look at verse 13, we next find that their attitude is wrong. You also say, oh, what a weariness. And you sneer at it, talking about giving to God what he deserves. Says the Lord of hosts, and you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? Well, that's a rhetorical question. We know he's, he's, the idea there is no, he should not accept it. You think about that phrase there in verse 13. You also say, oh, what a weariness. Their attitude is that what God requires from them is just simply too much. God wants too much from them. He says in verse 13, and you sneer at it. They were despising the idea of doing what God was, was requiring of them. It was too much in their eyes. Oh, what a weariness there in verse 13. And then we find next these phrases and these concepts of, but you say, and their response to what God has said before. We saw in verse 6, the Lord asked, where is, where is his honor? And their reply in verse 6 is, uh, to you priests who despise my name, yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? They say, in what way have we dishonored you? Have we despised you? That was their response. Because there was no honor. We find next in verse 7, they deny defiling the Lord's table, but, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. They have denied defiling the Lord's table. They are pleased to give God who was rejected by others. As we find in verse 8, Offer it then, he says to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Going back to verse 8, they were offering up what others would reject. And they're acting as if, well, the Lord's good enough for the Lord. It may not be good enough for governors, as he points out there in verse 8, but it's good enough for the Lord. We also find, if you think about verse 13, God addressed their attitude as wrong because they look at what God required of them as a weariness. And then in verse 14, look what happens. We find that they were dishonest. The Lord says here, But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifice to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. The idea there is that they have what is good and able to be given to God as a sacrifice, yet they hold it back. They do not give to God as they could. It's not that they were unable to do so, 
is that they refused to do so. Instead, he offered, he says here in verse 14, but sacrifices the Lord what is blemished. Why? Because he's not a great king in their eyes, because they obviously believe they can do to God whatever they please. They believe they can worship God in whatever way they'd like. And as we back up here in just a moment, we've seen some things the Lord has against them. We have seen their reply. And then we find in the midst of these verses, verses 9 through 11, that they are encouraged to, to entreat the Lord's favor in verses 9 through 11. Looking at verse 9 and following, the Bible says here, But now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Who is there even among you who would shut the doors that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, and every place incense shall be offered to my name in a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. What is God wanting to drive home here? That he is to be treated great from among the nations. Well, they were not doing that. He says twice there in verse 11, My name shall be great among the nations. And again, for my name shall be great among the nations. But it was not among these individuals here. They will not be, their worship will not be acceptable. Their acts will not be acceptable to God until they ended uh, their vain worship. Their worship was, was all show, we might say, and no truth or sincerity. And as a result, it was rejected by God. Why? Because he is great among the nations, even though these individuals were not treating him as such. As we move into chapter 2, we're not looking at all at chapter 2, just about half of it here, if even that. As you look at the punishment and warnings in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, because this really is a continuation. God tells them what they have been doing wrong. They deny it. He tells them again what they've been doing wrong. And then he brings out some warnings and some punishment and a curse, as he references here in chapter 2, that's going to be, going to be coming against them and has in many ways already begun. As you look at chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 3, he begins first by looking to the priests. To the priest, a curse has already began and will remain until change takes place. And now, O priest, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear, if you will not take it to heart, to give glory to my name, says Lord of hosts, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have cursed them already because you do not take it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your descendants and spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your solemn feast, and one will take you away, and one will take you away with it. Basically saying, I'm going to get, put a curse upon you, take away your blessings, I'm going to, now I'm going to smear all your trash, basically says, on your face, because that's how, basically in my mind, that's how God is feeling they have done to him. They're not giving him what is due to him. Look at verse 2. If you will not hear, if you will not take it to heart, to give glory to my name. And you know, that really boils it all down there, doesn't it? They're not giving glory to God. They're not honoring him. They're not following him. They're not worshiping correctly. They have no sincerity. And we find there in verse, verse 3, he goes on to say there, uh, verse 2 rather, he goes on to say, I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have cursed them already because you do not take it to heart. 
It's like us saying sometimes people don't take this seriously when we say certain things. And that's what God is saying there. You're not taking me seriously. You're not listening to what I'm saying. So what's happening, I'm going to punish you for it. He will rebuke their descendants and he will spread the refuse on their faces, the refuse of their solemn feasts, and one will take you away with it. In verses 4 through 7, we find the covenant was to continue uh, with Levi's. Look at verse 4. Then you shall know that I have sentenced commandment to you, that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of hosts, because that was God's desire, that that covenant with Levi continue. My covenant was with him, one of life and peace. I gave them to, uh, uh, and I gave them to him that, that he might fear, fear me, so he feared me and was reverent before my name. What happens? What would they have? They had peace. They had life. Why? Because they were reverent before him. They obeyed him. Looking at verse 6, the law, was, the, the law of truth was in his mouth. Now this begins to talk about, as we find here in verse 6, the characteristics of true priests of God. The law of truth was in his mouth, and injustice was not found on his lips. He'd walk with me in peace and equity and turn, turn many away from iniquity. God, we find here, wanted the covenant to continue with Levi, and he gives an example of how priests are to act there in verse six or verse seven, or verse six rather, as we find there. And we continue looking at verse seven. For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge, and people should seek the law from his mouth, for he is a messenger of the Lord of hosts. This implies very clearly that priests are to be those who speak truth, those who follow truth. Those who love truth, those who know the law and keep it. And what is that? We find next in verse 7, for he is a messenger of the Lord of hosts. So he cannot be involved in wickedness. But yet we find in the very next two verses that they had departed from the way. They had departed from the way, and as a result, they were being punished. But you had departed from the way, you have caused many to stumble at the law, you have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore also have made you contemptible and base before all the people, because you have not kept my ways, but have shown partiality in the law. He's saying that you have not done what you're supposed to be doing, as we saw in verses 6 and 7. They had made the worship of God contemptible, they, and now God had made them uh, the same thing, the same way before all the people. They made God's worship, you might say, a joke, and God made them, in return, a joke among the people. You ever wonder why so many people sometimes say, well, there's nothing, there's no one inside the, in the church with a bunch of hypocrites? Because we look around today from those who claim to be a Christian, and they really are many who are hypocrites. It doesn't mean everyone is. And we understand that. The Bible teaches there are hypocrites out there as well. It doesn't mean that that's all the church is made of, because those who are behaving in such ways, they're not truly part of the church anyway. But we look here in verse 9, that they have made God and, and worship and all these things seem to be just as if it's really not that important. They're no longer giving God the very best. God was no longer important to them. He wasn't receiving the honor due his name. What happened? They're being punished. And now they're going to be made the joke, really, before all the people. Some lessons for us today. <clears throat> God loves the righteous. You go back to the beginning of chapter 1 of Malachi, that's how he began, was talking about how much he has still loved Israel. 
before we begin to call them out and tell them all the things they've been doing wrong, he first reminds them that he has loved them. I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? There's their response. From the very beginning of Malachi, you begin to see their attitude. It's like a spoiled child almost, isn't it? Don't we give everything you need? Well, what way have you given me everything I need? You can kind of hear that maybe from some. Hopefully we don't hear that from ours. But that's basically the idea here with God. He has loved them. He has given them everything they need. And yet they reply, in what way have you loved us? And he begins to call them out one by one about the things they have been doing. God loves the faithful. This is a reminder that God has loved those who loved him. God is good to the righteous. Looking at Psalm 37, verse 25, the psalmist there reminds us when he says, I've been young and now I'm old, yet have not seen a righteous forsaken, nor does a descendants begging bread. Psalm 37, 25. Well, God is always with the faithful, but the same cannot be said of the Christian. The faithful sometimes can become unfaithful, no longer with God. And what happens? They will not take to heart, as he says there in Malachi chapter 2, his words, then the price of, of their rebellion and, and unfaithfulness will come back upon them. The second thing I want us to consider is that God demands proper attitude towards him and worship of him. Proper attitudes towards him and worship of him. God demands honor, respect, and truthfulness. God did not accept worship from those who had no desire to worship God properly. Their vain worship was rejected. You notice there in verse 10 of Malachi 1, Nor will I accept an offering from your hands. Everything they were offering up was in vain, so that you will not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you. That's the second time they're spoken of in a negative sense. Says the Lord of hosts, Nor will I accept, accept an offering from your hands. Three times the negative phrases are used to talk about how he does not have any pleasure in their acts of worship. Because it wasn't giving, he, they weren't giving God their very best. You know, not only were they not giving God the sacrifices according to the old law, which was give him the very best, the unblemished, the uninjured, all those things, but their heart was not in it. You remember also back in Malachi, uh, there were some who were saying, as we saw back in verse 13, oh, what a weariness. It's a poor attitude, isn't it? You know, if we're not careful when it comes time for Sunday morning or Sunday evening or Wednesday night or comes gospel meeting week or whatever it may be, we're not careful. We can find ourselves saying the same thing. Oh, what a weariness. This is too much. And we shouldn't have that attitude. God did not accept worship from those who had no desire to worship him properly. And nothing has changed today. Looking at Matthew 15, verses 8 and 9, we all know this, right? They drew near him with their mouth and honored him with their lips. Their heart is far from me, which means it sounded good and it looked good, but their heart wasn't really in it. And we say in Malachi, yeah, from the outside, you might say they're still doing what is right. They're still offering up sacrifices. They're still doing this. They're still doing this. But their heart wasn't in it. And because their heart wasn't in it, they weren't actually giving what they should be giving to God in the first place, which was the very best. And he says in verse 9 there in Matthew 15, And in vain, do they, in vain they worship me. And then he says, Why their worship is vain? Teaching as doctrines and commandments of men. 
What were the priests doing in Malachi's time? Doing the same thing by telling their people, hey, just bring whatever you want. You want to hold back the very best, get what you think about them calling them out on it. No, the priests accepted it. The priests brought it in. Hold back what you want and just bring in the lame and those with blemish. And what did God say? Would you offer this to your governors? Well, they wouldn't, but they bring it to God. You know, sometimes we think about our own, our own attitudes. We want to have, it's sad when we have attitudes, certain attitudes towards one thing, but we have different attitudes towards God in a negative sense. The things we're willing to do to be certain places and to be a part of certain activities, whatever the case may be. But when it comes to acts of the church, we don't have that same attitude. There's always some who will sacrifice so much to go to various events and various locations and be a part of various activities. And you can fill in that, that blank with whatever you want. You know, I've seen people go to games after surgeries who claim they're in such pain and they go sit in the bleacher for six hours and come back and you talk to them the next day and they couldn't make it to worship service. That's a priority problem, isn't it? And what's really sad about so much of this is we think sometimes today, some of those individuals say, think, well, no one knows. This is sure, I may never find out. That doesn't really matter because God already knows. God knows what we're doing. And most of all, he knows why we're doing it. You know, the Bible tells us over and over again, the Word of God is powerful, yet sharper than two, two, to any two-edged sword, piercing to division of uh, bone and marrow and, and, and soul and spirit, and, and is a certain of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It is a certain of the thoughts and intents of the heart, which means God's Word reveals to us only what we're doing, but the why. You know, kids have a very good way of asking that question. Why, 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 why? And when it comes to spiritual things, sometimes we need to ask ourselves, why? Not because we're not sure, but we need to remind ourselves, why are we here? Why are we doing this? Why are we refusing to do this? Why is this such a priority? Because it will reveal our true motives. Insincerity and lack of true effort towards God are not tolerated. Like I said before, we may never know why some people do the things they do, but rest assured, God already does. God knows uh, the heart of man. Even though we may not be able to change the heart of some and help them see what they should be doing and why, on the judgment day, friends, God will remind them the Lord will remind them, but it will be too late for them to change. Man sometimes has a delusional idea that God can be fooled, but man only continues to, to be proven wrong over and over again. You know, you think about how many times in the Bible we find those who try to do things in the dark, and try to do things in secret because they believe that no one can see them, including God. You know why people like to party in the evenings? Those are involved in what we call pretty raucous parties. Because in the evening, you have that illusion that you can do things without being seen. And the Bible also reminds us that the day and the night are both alike to God, which means there's no use of trying to hide anything. You know, I'm sure David 
with Bathsheba thought he had concealed his act so very well. You know, he tried to convince David to go down and be with his wife, and that didn't work. He basically cast him out into a battle where he could be killed and just try to cover all that up. And it didn't work. Instead, a man came to him and told him that he was the man he was guilty of sin. And friends, on the day of judgment, we will find ourselves in the same situation if we had the wrong attitude. We must learn from the foolish acts of others. You know, we think about what we've seen this evening in Malachi. We think about the, the offerings and we think about the attitudes. And to me, much of what we see here this evening is about our attitude. Because we can do the right things and ruin them by our own attitudes. We can be involved in great works. We can be involved in, in, in the work of the church. But if our attitude behind it is wrong, it's worthless. We can serve the church, but we come in bossing everybody around and barking orders at them. Well, you just ruined it. If you come in seeking your own glory, well, you just ruined it. If you come in wanting to be in charge and everybody know what you should be doing, the list goes on and on, well, you just ruined it. If we come in with a humble heart, wanting to do what we can for the church, and honestly, with that honest endeavor to help where we can, to lead where we can lead, and do so in the right way. You know, those in Malachi's time had the opportunity to serve God in spirit and in truth, as we think about here in the New Testament time today. But they chose, they chose not to. So let's, not, let's learn from them and not follow that example. Because we know what awaited them. The Lord told them that the curse is already coming upon them. So let's learn from their example and not follow after that. This evening, as you think about these things, we can help you or encourage you in any way. We'd be glad to do so. Let's get every sand and sing this song that's been selected. <laughs>